Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Lisa McCormick about the cultural sociology of art and music, new directions and new discoveries. Uh, so welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm sort of fascinated and, 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 and also sort of enthused by this book, um, partially because of what, what the title says, actually, you know, new directions and, and new discoveries. And, and it sort of struck me as um, a really, you know, sort of significant agenda setting book um, in the study of, of art and, and music and actually kind of culture um, slightly more more generally. And I'm interested um, in what inspired the collection, um, where I guess kind of your role as, as editor came from and, and, and why you decided to put together this, uh, this collection. Sure. Well, this started off as a special issue for the American Journal of Cultural Sociology. I was invited to guest edit uh, an issue on art and music, and I received so much interest and so many great proposals that after putting together this special issue, I invited some of the um, su- uh, people who submitted to put together this edited collection with me. And uh, I'm so pleased with how it came about because I think it really does make a case for greater diversity in the kind of approaches we take to studying artistic objects and artistic endeavors. I mean, that, that thing of, of artistic objects, artistic endeavors is, is really crucial, um, I think. And, and the book, I suppose, saying the book is is kind of critical of, of how we do the sociology of art and culture is, is maybe the wrong framing, but, but I guess the book says actually the, there are a whole other set of ways we could be thinking uh, about the sociology of, of, of art and music and, and art and culture. And one of those obviously is, is with this framing of cultural sociology. And um, you, you talk in the, in the book, and I know some of your other work has, has been in, involved in this uh, cultural sociology um, approach called the Strong Programme. And I guess it, it'd be useful to clear a bit of ground by saying what that is and and where this collection relates to that uh, specific approach um, in cultural sociology. Yes, well, the STRONG program is a particular theoretical commitment. Um, Basically, uh, the differentiation that's being made there to the sociology of culture um, has to do with whether or not you see culture as relatively autonomous. So a strong program approach thinks that you can't avoid meaning. It thinks that culture can be a causal force. It doesn't want to relegate culture to being something that's a dependent variable, uh, something that just is driven by social structure. Instead, it It develops different tools and analytical approaches to understand how meaning works and how meaning drives people and shapes uh, the world that we live in. I guess the question that comes from that then is, is what's the sort of the newness, um, you know, what are the new directions, new discoveries um, with regard to applying the strong program? Because obviously it's, it's got a very long uh, and, and very sort of prestigious history as, as, a, as a way of doing sociology. So why were you thinking in terms of new directions and, and new discoveries? 
Indeed. Well, in some ways, uh, it was a new approach in 2006 when I co-edited Myth, Meaning, and Performance with Ron Ironman. Um, that's when we were really trying to carve out a new path for a cultural sociology of the arts. Um, this is in many ways the sequel that's marking a new stage in that. It's kind of coming of age um, and making sure that this approach, this cultural sociology approach, is put into conversation with other perspectives that also attend to meaning because these are kind of scattered about in the field. Um, so I felt that it was time to bring this together and put them into conversation because in thinking about what's happened in cultural sociology and sociology of the arts um, since Myth, Meaning, and Performance came out in 2006, in some ways, a lot has changed, but in a lot of ways, nothing has changed. I feel like there have been so many theoretical developments in cultural sociology, things like the iconic turn, um, which is extremely relevant to the arts. Um, but cultural sociologists have continued to gravitate towards topics and areas that are non-artistic. They really focus on things like politics and trauma and things like that. Whereas the sociology of the arts has also developed. Um, there's far more about creative industries now um, than putting sociology of the arts in dialogue with history of art or um, music sociology, which was the conversation um, in the 1990s into the turn of the century. Um, and yet, there's still a lot of depending on Bourdieu and Becker. And these are perspectives that were developed in the 20th century to, to speak to how art was done and made and thought about in the 20th century. And I feel like a lot has moved on. Um, there is more that we can be doing. Uh, we have had several calls to bring meaning and the artwork back into sociology of the arts. Um, so why don't we just get on with it already. And so that's why I was assembling people who in different ways have been doing this and have been attending to meaning, meaning, but perhaps haven't been as aware of each other as they should have been, and perhaps haven't been engaging as directly with the strong program as they could be. Yeah. And, and, and I think that gives a really nice uh, overview of the, the, the rationale for what's going on with the chapters that there's a line uh, somewhere uh, in your introduction where you talk about bringing a kind of cultural approach to cultural objects. Um, and I think that that summary of, you know, on the one hand, uh, strong program sociology has, has, has been getting involved in, I guess, kind of, you know, non-cultural topics as, as you outline or non-art and culture topics. And at the same time, you know, so much of that kind of sociology of culture tells you, you know, things about taste and social position or um you know patterns of discrimination in, in the cultural workforce or whatever and there is this kind of lack of uh, i guess kind of sense of as you describe meaning and one of the ways that the book opens and, and kind of gets into this and, and and you've sort of alluded to this already is by doing a bit of kind of agenda setting early on uh, and the first three chapters um I, I was struck by the way that you've got uh, a chapter that tries to develop the idea that you know french sociology of art and culture is more than just Bourdieu. you've got a chapter that says actually actor network theory you know which has been one of the big um, I guess, kind of um, movements in, in sociological theory since the 1980s, that can be really, really useful for understanding 
the sociology of art and artists. And also we can apply um, this cultural approach to think about things like art market scandals. So for that first section of the book, what were you trying to get the authors to, to do and what were you trying to bring together when you were thinking about setting new agendas? Well, the first chapter I uh, that sets these new agendas is more of an overview to try to understand how we got here in the first place. So I was delighted that um, Natalie Hainick, who is an absolute giant in the field uh, of the sociology of art, um, could give us her take on how at least um, in France, the sociology of art evolved. So she takes us through three generations and shows us all kinds of twists and turns and in how this field developed, also explains to us how the field started in the first place by and takes us through these developments of uh, telling English speakers, people who maybe aren't able to read in French, about all kinds of studies and all kinds of debates um, that we perhaps have not been sensitive to in Anglo sociology. So uh, that chapter was important to me because it shows that for some time now, there has been a call for a more interpretive approach. And, and in Natalie Hainick's case, it's inspired very much by Norbert Elias, um, but it's trying to provide the counterpoint to the critical um, empirical perspective that um, Bourdieu pioneered um, and to which we're very grateful because had it not been for him, we wouldn't have a sociology of art in France as we know it. Um, but there has been so much more that she's been trying to develop um, alongside other scholars in pragmatism, for example, um, who have found other theoretical resources and other sorts of methods to use um, to, to try to understand what motivates um, people uh, to not dismiss their beliefs just as illusions and to explain everything away in terms of um, social position or domination. Um, so that, I thought, kind of sets things up to say that there's always been more um, theoretical diversity than we might even have realized. Um, then in the next chapter, Roberts and, and Strandvad um, look at the existing approaches uh, to studying uh, um, artist residencies. Uh, they don't want to dismiss uh, the art world's approach. They don't want to dismiss Bourdieu. Um, and they certainly want to harness everything that actor network theory can do for them. But they also find that it doesn't take them far enough. And this is what I found really exciting about this chapter is that they found this feature of artistic life. Artist residencies are incredibly numerous. They're all over the place. They, they are important for artists and artist development in pretty much every artistic discipline, and yet they're very difficult to study, they're very difficult to analyze, and all of the perspectives that we have to hand come up short. So they're trying to find a way to combine the strengths of exi existing perspectives, um, but also enrich that by moving beyond them to bring in ideas such as creative ecologies. So part of the chapter, I think, is very generous in its orientation, and that's one of the reasons why um, I think it fits well with what I was trying to achieve with the volume, is that it's, it's acknowledging that actor network theory hasn't traditionally done terribly 
well at acknowledging um, inequalities. Um, they want to see how it can do better by being combined in very specific ways with a critical sociology. And yet even that isn't quite enough to reach um, into the creative process, into how objects are created by artists, but also to see how this existence in a purely artistic sphere relates beyond the artistic sphere to think about things like how a pandemic affects um, an, an artist's livelihood as well as creative potential. And then we have in um, Amy Whitaker and Fiona Greenland's chapter, um, a a tour de force theoretically that's uh, generating new concepts such as the financial simulacrum and also combining ideas from the strong program, things like social performance of the art, artistic, um, of the art dealer to try to understand a new kind of scandal. So, they show that uh, in in the sociology of art, we've thought a lot about scandal in the arts, but it's usually to do with how artists shock audiences through the art itself. And they're noticing that yeah, more recently, as art has become financialized, there's kind of a new potential for a new sort of scandal. And so they choose a specific case because it brings to light all kinds of significant changes in how art is um, bought and sold. And and I, I'm particularly excited about this idea about artworks having a kind of dual status or a dual nature um, so that it exists both in this financial realm um, uh, where it has f- uh, a kind of commercial value, but it also has this um, artistic nature where it's it, it, it's critical praise and it and what it means to artists and to uh, to aficionados gives it uh, a different sort of hermeneutic value, and so there. Their argument is that the commercial value is actually rooted in its non-market value, that it's only because it has artistic meaning that an artwork can have financial value. But in uh, contemporary society, where now art is an asset class and you have all kinds of shareholders, it, it creates this different relationship between the buyers and the artwork. Uh, Shareholders don't have to know each other, let alone anything about art. And it creates this kind of new space um, where you need a dealer who who can manage going in between the artistic world and the financial world. Um, It demands a certain kind of person with certain kinds of characteristics, but it also opens up opportunities like we see um, with the Philbrick case um, where things go horribly wrong. Obviously, meaning is really central uh, in in that chapter's analysis, and, and and the second section of the book really really opens that out. Um, it, it's called "What Art and Music Mean," um, and the chapters within that um, I, I think there are particularly t- t- two chapters that I found kind of most interesting. But obviously, feel free to pick out um, your own examples within this. At root, I, I think all four of them are grappling with this question about how do um, artists and organizations understand, think about the meaning of what it is um, that they're doing. So you've got a chapter about 
what artists think is the meaning of art. There's a chapter about uh, questions of diversity and how it's constructed in American classical music. Uh, there are perspectives from migration studies. Uh, and there's, there's a chapter about how critics kind of both make meaning for themselves, for artists and, and for their, their publics as well. And I suppose that the, the broad question I'd like to tease out from, from this section is this idea about what do artists, critics, musicians think is the kind of the meaning of what it is they do? And how do those four chapters uh, really tell us an answer to that question? Well, they tell us in different ways. So what I liked about uh, both Alexandra Sutton's chapter and uh, Anne Mullen's chapter is that they're talking to the artists themselves and listening to the debates that artists and musicians have about what they do. Um, and and they're actually investigating that um, uh, and taking it seriously. So this has been kind of a blind spot uh, in, in the sociology of art. There's been all kinds of looking at reception studies, all kinds of, uh, uh, of, of looking outside of the actual um, relationship between the artist and their artwork and not enough talking to the artists and the musicians about what it is they think they're doing. Um, and especially in Alexander Sutton's case, I, I think it's, it's quite fascinating how he's finding in uh, their discussions and their struggles um, to, 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 to really contend with social justice issues. Um, uh, there, there has been a history in American art music that they're in conversation with, that they are very um, sensitive to. Um, and, and so it's not like all of a sudden, out of nowhere, um, classical music has started to recognize that there are diversity issues. In different ways, different generations have been trying to contend with this aesthetically as well as socially. Um, but now, since uh, the murder of, of, of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, this has become more urgent than ever. And so he's tracing the different initiatives and the different approaches that these organizations and these individuals take in actually trying to make um, art music matter for their time. And and Anne Mullen is, is investigating the same kind of um, urgency of relevance, but by by talking to artists about why they think they're or how they think people actually engage with their art, um, and 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 she finds that it, they're not only interested in how viewers of art decode it; they're they're quite sensitive to the fact that not everybody has an art history education, but they don't think that viewers who aren't necessarily well-versed and immersed in art history won't get what they're doing. Um, they'll engage with it differently. They might engage with it viscerally in a more kind of sensuous manner, um, but that doesn't diminish at all what they are trying to get through to their viewers. Um, they're also hoping that the art kind of engages with issues um, that are kind of uh, that emerge through the art itself. So even if the artwork isn't necessarily what the person is um, responding to, um, there might be ideas that are triggered um, and that maybe even um, take the the person out of their everyday experience. That 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 
to to artists is an achievement. And um, but it's not like the section forgets that part of artistic discourse um, is is influenced by critics. Um, this is what's fantastic about Hannah Wall's approach is that uh, she's uh, done this very systematic study of of critical discourse in the main art uh, newspapers and uh, journals in the United States to see how it is that critics contend with uh, contemporary art that's always polyvocal, very ambiguous in its meaning. And yet there are very, very kind of common devices uh, that that uh, critics use to, not in a prescriptive way but more in kind of a suggestive way to um, to guide or suggest ways to um, interpret these very complex works and 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 this, I think uh, helps to explain why so many of us enjoy reading reviews so much. I, I, I've, I've confessed to, to Hannah that I'm, I'm constantly reading reviews of exhibitions and films uh, that I'll, I'll never be able to see because it's in another city or I'm unable to make it. But, but there's something about the writing that is just so, um, so amazingly done, so exciting and, and, and so aesthetic in itself. And that's what she's really getting to is how they're using metaphors, how they're using different devices in describing the work and interpreting the work, but not in this um, really rigid, um, prescriptive way. Um, whereas um, Varvara Kobishta is, is really engaging with um, migrant artists in a new way, in uh, doing interdisciplinary work in a very exciting um, uh, and inventive way, uh, trying to bring migra- migration studies into conversation with cultural sociology. She's found this resonance um, in the way that um, art and migration scholars talk about um, artists who are in this uh, uh, kind of situation and the way that cultural sociology has talked about the agency of art, and uh, in in teasing out the different trajectories that um, that migrating artists are going through simultaneously. Some of these are through geographic space. Sometimes it's about um, migrating through aesthetic space, um, and and how these do not always align, but how how um, artists can turn to a variety of resources. Some of them actually artistic, not only professional, not only financial. Some of them purely artistic, to make sense of their new situation in their new home, adopted home, um, that uh, non artists might not have uh, available to them. And that involves some very sophisticated um, interdisciplinary thinking. I mean, that, um, I suppose, geographical um, perspective comes through in in the third section of the book, which is really um, engaging with with the places where art and and, and music happen. So there's a chapter about art galleries, uh, which had a particularly interesting theoretical perspective, actually, and, and, and was quite, you know, sort of left field uh, both in in terms of thinking about gallery space but in, also in terms of the sociology of a gallery uh, there's a chapter about uh, music venues and then in, intriguingly there's there's uh, i suppose um, a bit you know like thinking about migration studies and, and cultural so- sociology there's a chapter that tries to engage with 
what's going on with the aesthetics and economics of um, musicians and um, contemporary music in in Japan, and and again, you know, to try and distill um, all of that into a single answerable question is is is, is an impossible <laughs> task. Uh, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Uh, where does I guess kind of place fit then in this um, new directions and new discoveries for cultural sociology? Well. What I love about this section is that it answers that each in a different way. So Laura Harris um, is thinking about the city, but she is thinking about the gallery in the city. And she's really thinking about the materials of the gallery, particularly the windows and how these are all part of what is um said in an exhibition, but also what uh, visitors to an art gallery are responding to. And so the, the, she's really building on um, ideas of atmosphere and how this is created uh, through, um, through materials, through glass, um, through the way that light is filtered, and, um, and that this is a huge component of of what is creating meaning in and outside of the gallery, um, so th- that that is is perhaps um, uh, the a way to think about that is the gallery in the city, whereas with uh, Picot's article, it's the city. It's all of the music venues in the city. So I think we're going from uh, slightly more specific to the, the the space of of the of a whole city and how the different music venues relate to each other. Um, this one I I relate to very much as a musician because I've had to think about how to modify what I do and how to do it more effectively as a cellist, depending on what kind of space I'm playing in. And Picot has had some very exciting access to bookers, who are the people who engage the musicians to play concerts in spaces, but sometimes come up with really creative ideas about what kind of performer or what kind of ensemble would work well in a space um, where they don't normally play. And there are all kinds of aesthetic gambles that happen through these experiments. Some of them are one-offs. Some of them are genre like groundbreaking and they they generate um incredible excitement that that then becomes embedded um in uh in the city um as a new kind of um uh, 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 aesthetic musical experience that uh generates even further experiments so um this involves again some very sophisticated uh, uh, theoretical uh, acrobatics, um, thinking of the the field, uh, a Bourdieuian field um, in Paris. But this is combined with a strong program to think about why some concerts worked and other concerts didn't. And she combines a kind of multiple correspondence analysis to give us this um, field context, but. Then an ethnographic um, investigation of a few um, selected concerts to show us when the elements of performance come together in this 
hugely creative way um, and click and work and fuse with the audience. Um, The last chapter um, is different yet because it's thinking about a a space of performance, not a particular place of performance, but um, a kind of genre of concert, which is the salon. And uh, these are important to Japanese musicians, um, which is a puzzle for sociologists because they don't actually make much money by putting on a salon concert. Um, They actually have to spend their own time and resources putting together their own salon concert. So um, Beata Kowalczyk uh, uses a strong program approach, thinks about this in terms of social performance to investigate how it is that this particular setting, this particular occasion creates a conducive mise-en for um, musicians to be able to be the kind of musicians they always wanted to be and perform this ideal performance of European classical music to the sort of audience um, they they had in mind um, and performing the kinds of programs they'd always had in mind um, in, during their studies and, and early um, early career. The final section is probably the most eclectic, um, partially because you've got um, such a, a wide range of, of different perspectives. You know, you've got stuff about intellectual property and, and, and law, um, stuff that I guess, you know, draws on um, ideas from politics, you know, possibly even sort of political science in, in, in the case of thinking about democracy and, and democratization. Um You've got a really fan- fantastic historical uh, example um, of, of jazz in uh, Czechoslovakia, as was. And, and then a discussion of, I guess, a kind of an emergence of almost a new field uh, in the context of, of, of art and research. And this section, I, I suppose, a, a good question to, to sort of synthesize what's going on is how did you synthesize what, what's going on? How did you bring together these four quite uh, distinctive and, and quite eclectic um, chapters um, into this final section of the book? The thread really was controversies of different kinds. So the controversy in Meredith Hall's chapter is over a racial slur that was chosen um, as a name for a, 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 a rock band, a popular music dance band. And uh, they decided to trademark it, and this became this major court case um, it, 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 that it, it just kind of escalated and it became this huge public debate um, uh, over whether someone should be able to own a racial slur. So we had a debate that was sparked by musicians and a musician who emerged from the field of popular music to to present himself as this great hero, civil hero, who was um, protecting the or advancing the rights of minority and calling out um, American institutions um, for for treating um, uh, minority communities differently, um, with some unintended consequences, um, which uh, Meredith Hall goes into uh, very very well. Um, But this was one kind of controversy. I liked that there were so many different kinds of controversies. Uh, Dominic Zelensky's controversy is one that (laughs) he he had to 
to show you that there was more controversy. So um, everyone has assumed that jazz in Stalinist Czechoslovakia uh, was denigrated because it was American, but he shows us that it was never as simple as that, and that there was actually quite a lot of debate about whether jazz should be seen as the music of the proletariat, not as the music of the dying class. So there he's helping us to understand, first of all, why that uh, that controversy arose in the first place, why it created so much trouble for um, the kind of Stalinist cultural sphere, um, how it is that uh, jazz became so unclassifiable uh, for for um, musicians and uh, cultural uh, agents of the time um, and why we've been so quick to assume that this was a simple case um, in, in, in more recent times. So this was uh, very much a, 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 a non-obvious, it's not what you think kind of article, um, which I always particularly enjoy. And it's also an excellent um, example of a strong program hermeneutic, um, structural hermeneutics, where you can uh, put uh, uh, uncover the cultural logic of a society or of a group and show how it is that that logic is attempting to be used uh, to understand uh, an artistic practice, but here coming into trouble because of its internal inconsistencies. Um, Alison Gerber's article, uh, I'm sorry, chapter on uh, is is about controversy in a different way. Um, it's about a scandal as well because it ha- it starts off uh, by pointing out uh, a shocking occurrence that happened when a PhD in artistic research um, was. A PhD candidate in artistic research uh, failed their uh, doctoral defense, and this this was earth shattering in in Swedish society because this had never happened before, and it was actually front page news, um, and and discussed far beyond the art world. Was why was this allowed to happen? How could this happen? And it really drew attention to this field of research, which is artistic research, um, which exists well beyond Sweden. Um, it's it's a global phenomenon, but um, but here too, uh, there there's a kind of difficulty and contestation around the boundaries of it. What exactly is artistic research? Is it art? Is it research? And what do they mean by artistic research? So, um, so uh, what what uh, Alison Gerber does is come up with different ways to understand how these boundaries are negotiated. Because for a lot of people involved in this field, the boundaries aren't important, and so she's curious why they are sometimes important and how those are navigated when they are made to become important. And uh, f- finally, uh, the, the, the closing article, um, the grand finale by Nancy Weiss Hanrahan, is, is, I think, a hugely important um, intervention uh, for, f- for our time because it, it's, it's really getting at the question of whether, uh, whether all of these incredible technologies and all of these, uh, uh, the digitization of music and art is actually democratizing it because there is a sort of assumption in a lot of discussions about 
the digital age and what this makes uh, accessible to people, um, there is this assumption that that's necessarily better and that's necessarily more democratic. But uh, she is really challenging challenging us to to think about whether it is. And she's doing this by revisiting earlier debates about music and democracy so that we can get out of our kind of presentist assumptions. Um, It kind of wakes us up to how this sort of issue was discussed in earlier moments of time um, and, and maybe makes us start asking different questions about the grounds upon which we are debating this. Um, to notice how sometimes uh, this discussion starts to, to, to sound an awful lot like libertarianism. And so she wants to uh, challenge us to think about whether we really are um, fostering a, a critical discourse, but also a kind of infrastructure um, in our media outlets that allow us to think about social issues and the meaning of music in our time. You've given an incredible summary of some of the themes and and ideas um, in in the various chapters. And, you know, it's really just the sort of starting point. And and I really sort of strongly urge people to uh, to buy the book, to to read uh, the book at as a book, as well as engage with the individual chapters. And given, you know, the, the sort of scale of the achievement, it seems um, sort of a bit of a mean question to finish with by asking, well, what are you going to do next? Because, um, you know, the, the amount of sort of work to bring this collection uh, together is really clear. But I suppose the book, in offering new directions and new discoveries, has it sort of given you a new research agenda? Um, are you at a point where you're like, well, actually, you know, I've sort of settled some accounts with um, a, a cultural sociology approach and might do something different? Um, are there, you know, possible uh, new research collaborations that have come from the book for you? What what happens next? Well, putting this book together was a total labor of love. I I enjoyed it so much. And these authors have just been incredible, rising to the occasion, um, being so creative and responsive and generous in how they approached the work. So um, it's really been an amazing uh, uh, journey, as they say. But really, just getting to know them all so much better and and to work with them on this, I really feel like it was a collective endeavor that maybe I was instigator, um, but we accomplished this together. And and I'm so proud of what we have done. So I really hope people are going to engage with it. And I hope they they are stimulated to, to try out some new ideas and to, to explore some avenues that they might not have otherwise. There is such a range of topics and, and also uh, geographic places and issues that, that we're engaging with, but I never pretended for one second that this was a comprehensive handbook. I know there are a lot of parts of the field that, that we were not um, engaging with. I think there are some potential um, links to emerging areas in sociology of the arts, um, uh, and and I I certainly look forward to to exploring that and seeing that explored in the field. In terms of of what I'm doing next, 
Um, it, I'm certainly continuing to um, explore how a cultural sociology of music can be done. Um, I'm personally am uh, working on uh, exploring the iconicity of musical instruments to think about how um, musical instruments become iconic objects. Um, I'm drawing on some of the ideas from the edited collection for this, um, especially um, uh, Fiona Greenland and Amy Whitaker's idea of this dual nature of the artwork. Um, in fact, we could say that uh, musical instruments have a, a triple nature. They have this commercial um, aspect, um, especially fine musical instruments, especially fine musical stringed instruments. Um, they're worth uh, hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of dollars. Um, so, uh, so there's that, but they are also works of art themselves. They are aesthetically pleasing, beautifully put together, um, but they're also heritage objects, which is why they wind up in museums, um, which is why they're preserved and, and people are concerned about um, their long-term preservation. So, so that's one avenue I am researching how, how, these, how these objects come to have such discursive depth, discursive depth, <laughs> pardon me. Um, so that's one avenue and I'm, I'm exploring, but I'm also um, considering uh, a, a, a new issue in, um, in contemporary uh, musical life, uh, which is uh, the, um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and how this has affected uh, 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 inst cultural institutions that promote internationalism. So especially... Um, international competitions in classical music. So this is building on my earlier work um, on classical music competitions. Uh, a lot has changed since my book came out in 2015. Uh, there's a lot more to do with digitalization um, of, of, of classical music um, competitions, of music competitions generally. Uh, and, and the pandemic has definitely accelerated these changes and raised a lot of questions about how that should be done. But the um, Russian invasion of Ukraine um, is another sort of of um, uh, challenge and uh, earthquake-like um, change, uh, which is uh, making uh, these institutions uh, think about their commitment uh, to civility and whether that involves uh, condemnation um, of Russia or whether that involves um, the banning of Russian and Belarusian competitors. So I'll be um, comparing how different cultural institutions have responded to this um, in uh, uh, both in music but also in sports. So uh, specifically, I'll be comparing the response of the World Federation of International Music Competitions to the International Olympic Committee because they had at the in initially completely opposite reactions to what was happening, but gradually the International Olympic Committee has been moving closer to what the, the World Federation of International Music Competitions has done, which is to say that Russian individuals should not be um, discriminated against, and it's the, the regime that should be challenged. 